Let's, let's get into the business at hand. It is Easter. And, and there's every reason to celebrate, regardless of our circumstances, re- regardless of our current difficulty. We, we live in light of Easter. We live in light of the resurrection because we are a people of the resurrection. I, I don't think that we bathe in that truth and in that hope as much as we could or as much as we should. Um, but but that, that's, that's the reality. Our reality is that no matter what difficult we go to, I'll get the words right, just bear with me. No matter what difficulty, there we go, we find ourselves in. Uh, we're so in touch with the difficulty that we've tended to crowd out the fact that we're supposed to live in light of the resurrection, not in the shadows of, of, of difficulty. So my hope, my goal today is to encourage you to fix your eyes on the hope of the resurrection, to fix your eyes on the truth of what Jesus said. And, and I, I want to get us there by walking through the story of some people whose, quite honestly, whose darkness dwarfs our current situation. I want to look at the, the followers of Jesus here in <clears throat> Matthew 16, oh, sorry, Mark 16. Um, as you read through Mark chapter 15, what you, you find is a group of people who could not possibly have had a worse Friday than they had, right? I mean, these are the followers of Jesus. They have been with him for years. They have listened to him teach and preach and saw him do miracles and do things with authority and power that has never been seen before and will never be seen again. They just marched into Jerusalem while Jesus was riding on the back of a donkey and the crowd was losing their minds. They're like, oh, Hosanna, this is the one, this is the one. I mean, this obviously was, was on the way up. It's, it's, it's riding the roller coaster, ticking towards the top, and then Friday is when it crested the hill and just crashed to the bottom. All of Jesus' followers deserted him. All of his disciples ran away and abandoned him. One of his disciples actually betrayed him and received money in order to get him arrested. Another one of his disciples, one of his closest disciples, Peter, denied even knowing Jesus. I want nothing to do with that man. I mean, it's, it's definitely been a terrible day. Culminates with the crucifixion of Jesus, executed like a common thief. And then it's over. And now Jesus is just another one of those names who built up a following, and then kaput. Uh, there, there's a number of them throughout history. And in fact, the Bible mentions one in Acts chapter 5. His name is Theotis. Theotis was a man who, who gathered a group of followers and, and got them pretty much addicted to him, to the place where he made mention, said, listen, you, you guys get your belongings and meet me down at the Jordan River. And then we will walk across the Jordan River and the, the water will stack on top of itself. We will part the Jordan River like Moses did with the Red Sea. And so his followers, many of his followers, gathered their belongings, headed to the river with Theotis, and, and stepped into the raging Jordan River, and it swept them downstream and killed many of them. And the followers who didn't go to the river that day were left to scatter. Another one of history, uh, Simon Bar Kokhba, is a man who led a revolt against the Romans. He set up his own independent state within the Roman Empire, and it lasted about, about three years. He was ruling over it. It seemed to be going well until the Romans decided they'd had enough, and they executed him. Now he's barely known. I mean, many had come to say that they were the one, but all of them had died. All of them had been killed, executed, or, or at the very least, reduced to nothing but a, but a Wikipedia page, right? And now... It seems Jesus is just one of those names. And for his followers, the confusion 
I mean, they're, they're, the, the fog in their brains, their hopes, their dreams, everything they thought was going to happen, it's all gone. And there's a fear that has replaced those hopes and dreams. There's soldiers everywhere. There's people everywhere giving them kind of sideways glances. So they're, they're, they're trying to figure out, is it safe to go out? I mean, imagine the terror they're experiencing. That's the context uh, when we start reading here in Mark chapter 16. Let's start reading here in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Then looking up, they noticed the stone, which was very large had been rolled away. So the ladies had waited until Sabbath was over, about 6 p.m., and they headed out into the shops to purchase the spices that they wanted to bring back to the tomb of Jesus. Um, but at 6 p.m., after they bought the spices, it's way too dark to head to the tomb. I mean, the, 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 the burial places weren't like today. Today, cemeteries are more like parks. Uh, they're set up for a place of reflection, a, a place really where you can rest and 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 let your soul settle as you visit those uh, who are buried there. But, but back then, burial places were on the, the other side of the tracks. I mean, they were there on the outskirts of town. They weren't places you ever wanted to go visit, particularly at night. And so the ladies purchased the spices and then waited until the next morning. And, and the next morning, as soon as the sun began to rise, so very early, they'd go to the tomb. Now, the women are going to the tomb not, not to preserve Jesus, not to mummify Jesus like the Egyptians did, they're bringing a large number of spices, very aromatic spices, in order to cover the stench of a body that's now been dead for a couple of days. And as they go, you get a glimpse of how overwhelmed they are. I mean, we don't know where in their journey the, the aha moment has, happens. We don't know which wo woman is, is the one who remembers. But as they're headed towards the tomb, it's the sudden thought strikes them of, oh, the stone. The stone. They, they rolled the stone in front of the mouth of the tomb. And, and that's the way you would seal a tomb. Um, and in fact, the stone would be placed in, uh, um, uh, it would decline. <laughs> so that way, they, it was easy to put the stone in front of the, the mouth of the tomb. But to roll it away was much more difficult. And as they're walking to the tomb, it's just, oh, what are we going to do? Who's going to help us with the stone? How are we going to get the stone moved? I don't know. Well, what are you going to do? Do you know anybody? Do you know anybody that lives around the area? And then as they come around the corner and see the tomb, they notice that the stone, the very large stone, has been rolled to the side and the tomb is open. It'd be something like you leaving the office and heading home. And halfway home, or as you pull in the driveway even, you realize, oh, I forgot my keys. How am I going to get in the house? And you start digging through your purse. You're trying to find your keys. How am I going to get in the house? Oh, I cannot. And you get out of your car and you're still digging like, I cannot believe I forgot my keys. How am I? And as you look up from your purse, you notice your front door is wide open. That cannot be good. Let's keep reading verse 5. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. 
See the place where they put him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. The women went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment had overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. So as they see that the stone has been rolled to the side, they enter into the tomb, and there standing on the right side is a man in a white robe. We're told in the other gospel accounts he's, he's in pure white clothing. He's glimmering and glistening. This, this is an angel, okay? And the angel gives these women three commands. And, and I'm going to repeat the commands and be somewhat obnoxious about the commands. Just bear with me. I just want to make sure that's in your head, okay? When, when the ladies come into the angel's presence, the first command he says, he says, Don't be afraid. Okay, that's pretty helpful, right? I mean, I'm sure when you were a kid and a huge thunderstorm rolled through and you were just, you were crying and you were scared and your dad looked at you and just said, don't be afraid. I'm sure right away you were like, oh, I feel better. Thank you, dad. Right? No. When the angel looks at you and says, don't be afraid, that usually doesn't remove all fear. <laughs> now, that is the way angels tended to begin their conversations with people. Uh, angels weren't those cuddly, cute little Cupid things. A angels were far different than that. And so they found it necessary to say, don't be afraid. And that's the first thing this angel says. That's his first command. His second command is, look at the empty tomb. Look at the empty tomb. Now we have to ask ourselves, why is the tomb empty? Now throughout the years, there have been a number of suggestions as to how the tomb got empty. I mean, there's, there's a number of them. They run the gamut. You've got the idea that when Jesus was removed from the cross, he actually wasn't dead. He was actually, he was, he was unconscious. And when they laid him in the tomb and they sealed it up, maybe the, the temperature being a little cooler, maybe the humidity being a little different, it, it stirred Jesus and he awoke and he was able with Herculean strength to, to push the stone out of the way and to leave the tomb and he's never been seen since. There's another one that says that uh, maybe the ladies ended up at the wrong tomb. Or maybe the Romans stole Jesus' body. Or, or the Jews, the chief priests, stole his body. Or better yet, maybe the, the disciples stole his body. Listen, there's, there's two things you need to understand. First is this. The, none of these are logical. None of those are logical explanations for why the tomb was empty. And, and you need to have an integrity of logic if you're going to try to dismantle the story of the resurrection. You cannot use any of those arguments. They are all highly illogical. Secondly, there is no opponent of Jesus, no denier of the resurrection, who claims the empty tomb wasn't actually empty. Every single one that denies this, uh, denies the resurrection as being a possibility, admits the tomb was in fact empty. They just try to explain it away instead of listening to what the angel says as a reason. See, the angel says, you look here at the empty tomb. Why is it empty? Because he has risen. Okay, don't be afraid. Look at the empty tomb. Now go and tell. Those are the three commands. Don't be afraid. Look at the empty tomb and go and tell. Now, now why? Why is that such a logical progression for what the angel is explaining to these ladies to do? The reason is this shouldn't be a surprise to them. This shouldn't be a surprise to them. This is what Jesus said was going to happen. He says at the end of verse 7, this is just as he told you. Now, did Jesus really tell them these things? Yes. <laughs> yeah, he actually told them he was going to rise again. Mark chapter 8, oh, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9, verse 9. When he's coming off the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, he tells them, listen, don't tell anybody about it until I rise from the dead. Very clear, he's going to rise from the dead. 
But he gets even more specific than that. He doesn't just tell them he's going to rise from the dead. He tells them he's going to rise from the dead on the third day. Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he begins to teach them it was necessary that the people were going to kill him. And after that, he would rise after the third day. Mark 9, 31, he's teaching his disciples again. He says, they're going to kill me. And after I'm killed, I'm going to rise three days later. Mark chapter 10, verse 34, just before the triumphal entry, as they're getting ready to head into Jerusalem, he's telling his disciples, listen, they're going to capture me, they're going to beat me, they're going to kill me, but I will rise after three days. But not only did he tell them he was going to rise, he was going to rise after three days, he told them where he is going. Mark chapter 14, verse 28, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Jesus was very specific about these things that the angel is saying. He was very specific about the fact he was going to rise from the dead. And so the angel says, go tell his disciples these things. He's going ahead of you to Galilee, just like he told you he was going to. So, so now, what he said would happen, did. <laughs> so, so, so don't be afraid. Take note of the empty tomb and go and tell. And what do the ladies do? They're terrified. They run away from the tomb and they tell no one. That's pretty much parenting in a nutshell. I mean, they, they, they did the exact opposite of what they have been commanded to do after coming into face-to-face -face recognition of the empty tomb. Now, on this side of the resurrection, I, mean, I can gladly say I would have reacted much differently. Wouldn't, wouldn't you have? No, so by the way, that was a trick. Uh, you wouldn't know. The answer is no. You would have screwed it up just as badly as they did and just a little less than I would have. So, so if you're in a room right now where somebody said, absolutely, I would have gotten it right, you have permission to get up and go punch them. Okay, good. That's enough. Bring it back. Okay, good. Okay, you can send all legal claims uh, to some other church because I'd never said that, no matter what the tape says. So, so the reality is we, we, we get so lost in this thinking, no, of course I would have known. No. The difficulty was so dramatic. The cloud was so big. The fog had set in so very much. I mean, this is a real moment for these women. Think about it. They just saw Jesus die. They just saw Jesus die. They, they heard the cursing, the mocking, the shouts. They saw the crowd turn on Jesus. They watched the soldiers beat Jesus. They heard Jesus whimper in agony. They heard his, his desperate cry as he was nailed to the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They heard his last word, to die, meaning it's finished. They saw him breathe for the last time. They were standing there when Joseph of Arimathea, a guy who they didn't even know was a disciple, came and took the body of Jesus and, and laid it in a tomb, rolling the stone in front of the mouth of the tomb. These women just saw Jesus die. But they also heard the whispers. They saw the glances of the chief priests. They saw the glances of the Roman soldiers. And they were aware of the fact that when an insurrectionist is captured and executed, his closest followers are often next on the list. So no, you, you wouldn't have reacted any differently, and neither would I have. This is so much more than any of them could handle. So much more than any of us could possibly handle. 
I'm telling you, in those times when we face great difficulty, in those times when we face things we cannot handle, we have a tendency to focus on all of the fog, all of the clouds, all of the difficulty, instead of the promise of God, instead of the the truth that God has given to us, instead of fixing our eyes on the things that Jesus said, instead of being so focused on just as he said that everything else falls away. Man, as a people of the resurrection, we need to fix our eyes on what Jesus said. What are some of the things Jesus said to you? He said this, you come to me and I will give you a rest for your souls that you cannot possibly get anyplace else. He said, if you follow me, you'll no longer be in darkness because I'm the light. He said, I'm here so that you can have life. Not, not just make it by life, but, but life that is so very abundant and, and, and rich and overwhelming that, 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 that it's hard to describe. He says, you, you come to me, you have access to the Father. And as you do what you're called to do, I will be with you and I will never leave you and I never forsake you. I've come so that you can have peace, real, genuine peace. It says, you believe and you will live even after you've died because I am the resurrection and I am the life. And don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of our current situation. Don't be afraid of difficulty that's just mounting against you. The resurrection gives you freedom from fear no matter how difficult the moment may be. I mean, one of the reasons we face tragedy and suffering and disease and death and and it's so difficult for us is because we see the present moment we find ourselves in. We see the current difficulty. We see this broken world. We see this, this body that is affected by the fall. And we think, this is all we've got. Folks, the resurrection isn't a happy ending to a sad story. It's it's not that Jesus came out of the tomb and he tells us how we're going to be reimbursed for our trouble. It's not, oh, I see, I know, I get it. It's really hard, really difficult. I'm, but here, you get as a consolation prize, heaven. I mean, that, that's not what the resurrection is all about. The resurrection says that this current world will be renewed. And we will get back all of those things that we have lost. All of those things we never had. The resurrection is both the fulfillment of Jesus' promise and a greater promise that will someday be fulfilled. That promise is this, just as Jesus lives, so shall we. Because he's the resurrection and the life. Someday we will be raised to reign with him on high. That's hope. That's hope. That's, That's hope. That's hope for a disabled person that one day their body will be made whole. That's hope for the addicted person that one day they will find victory over their addiction. That's hope for the lonely person. That one day they will find perfect relationship. It's hope for the discouraged, for the depressed. It's hope for the one who has faced incredible tragedy. It's hope for you. Mark 10.45 says, The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came to serve you. He came to help you. Not not that you could tell Jesus what to do, okay? But he came to serve you in the way that you really need to be served. You're a sinner. Romans 3.23 reminds us of that. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not some, not most, not many. All. 
All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the cost of sin is significant. And because God takes that sin so very seriously, the cost is death. The cost is that for all of eternity, he is going to pour out the full weight of the fury and wrath of God on sin for all of eternity. But because God is merciful, because God is gracious, because God is loving, because God is so very kind, Jesus came to pay your ransom. Jesus came to be your substitute, to, to push you out of the way and take your cross if you would accept his payment on your behalf. But was it enough? <laughs> Where's my proof? Well, you get, there is proof. You have a receipt. It's called the resurrection. The resurrection says that your sins are forgiven if you are in Jesus Christ. Here, when, when, a, when a criminal uh, receives his sentence and heads into prison to, to pay his due, to, to do his time, to fulfill his sentence, when he has fully fulfilled it, he has fully satisfied it, the law no longer has claim on him, and he's able to walk away from the prison as a free man. Jesus came to pay our ransom, to, to pay the penalty for our sins, as, as huge as that penalty was, as huge as that sentence was. And I'm going to tell you, he must have satisfied it. He must have satisfied it fully because he walked out of the grave a free man. See, the, the, the resurrection was when God stamped paid in full across our sentence. Just as he said. See, we're a people of the resurrection whose greatest problem in life is our sin debt. But that sin debt has been paid in full by the Savior who yet lives. So we can't allow our current darkness, we can't allow our current difficulty to, to grab our attention and to lose focus on the truth. Folks, hope and joy is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's found in the payment that is complete, that the work of Jesus is completely done for you. So no matter how chaotic and confusing everything around you is, no matter how difficult it is to see the light at the end of the tunnel, what you need to see and understand is every debt that you have accumulated in your sin has been paid in full, and the empty tomb is your receipt. Folks, he is risen, and we have a reason for joy, a reason for hope, a reason for gladness, unlike any other. Are you living in light of the resurrection today? Are you living with the hope of eternal life that has been provided to you because Jesus came out of the tomb? Man, I'm, I'm telling you, no matter how confused and dazed you may be right now, you have a reason to be glad. Are you? Now, oh, Father, please. Would you do a work in each of our heart? Would you, would you reset us? Would you recalibrate us to focus on the truth and the hope of the resurrection? Father, I pray for the one who is discouraged and overwhelmed right now. God, would they find a reason for joy? Would they understand that their debt has been fully satisfied in Jesus Christ? It's in his good name I pray. Amen.